If you can get through the conventional way of relating, then often you find that there are these meeting points of understanding. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikas. This episode is the eighth in the long run series where I speak with artists who've had practices spanning 60 years. And this time I'm talking with Vivian Binns. I've long looked up to Vivian as she was at the forefront of both feminist and community-driven art practices from the 1960s onward, and her art and activism has really changed the Australian contemporary art landscape. Vivian largely grew up in Sydney and in the 1950s attended the National Art School and became known in the 1960s for her show at Waters Gallery, where she exhibited works on female sexuality. And as history writes it, these caused quite a controversy. In the early 1970s, she co-founded the Sydney chapter of the women's art movement, which was integral in supporting women artists, and from here she spent decades involved in many community art projects, as well as continuing her own painting practice. Vivian and I talk about her childhood and the importance of women's domestic work, as well as her time at art school. We also talk about Vivian's long-standing inquiry into what art really is, and how this links to her own thoughts about womanhood and sexuality. And before we get started, a kind thank you to our sponsor for this series, Lenagel Auctioneers and Valuers, based in Melbourne and Sydney. You're known as much for your advocacy for women and community practices as much as your art. What did you see happening in the art world and in the world in general, where it felt that a feminist-driven way of working was the right direction for you? Because I'd been involved in certain ways with people in the community and then the interest in, you know, the women's art movement in Sydney began and, and it very quickly became clear that, first of all, you know, women's history had not been recorded so that it was very difficult to find out about the lives of women or what women did. And then secondly, you know, it's very difficult to find in the art books there. Yeah, one of the reasons why I'm hesitating is that so much, in a way, a question that could only come out of today, you know, however many years after the beginning. So the, the actual experience of living at the time uh, is quite different. You just you live from day to day. You don't have a historic or a full view of what's going to happen. You have certain historical views, but... Um, so many of the ideas that we take for granted today, in the in their origin or in the original day, they emerge slowly and you don't always have the language to say what the question is that you're asking or what the, you, you know, the idea of what might be a direction to go. Um, uh, as I say, it, it emerges drip by drip because you simply don't know. You're at a cutting edge. No, no, that completely makes sense. Maybe it's helpful to think of it through the lens of the women's art movement. And I know that you were involved in setting up the Sydney chapter in 1974. I got a call from Barbara Hall who wanted to get together a group of women uh, artists to talk about women and art and the, the questions of why aren't there more 
women artists more visible in exhibitions, in art books, etc., and to talk about our practices. So that was how it started and that was very, it was pretty, it was exciting actually, but it was really good to get together. And some of these women were women who were, if not highly established women artists, they were had been practising for some time. And others were students and others were were women who were interested in starting out. Out of that, I mean, and everything developed very quickly over, you know, the women's art movement in Sydney only lasted about two years over an, an enormous amount of things, number of things happened in that time. But we were look, starting to look out into the community to find out what, in fact, women did. What did they make? What did they do? What was their situations? Where were they able to work, etc.? And we had an exhibition and it was open to all women artists and it was an open-ended process which was about encouraging women to show us what they did without censure. There was a lot of criticism from certain, you know, much more conservative people in the arts world about that those kinds of policies. It was seen as lowering standard, total misunderstanding of what the process was about. It was about contacting women, any women who were interested in art, but who may not have been able to go further than just the kitchen table or, you know, developing photographs in the bathroom or whatever, whatever. Women doing traditional women's Things like sewing and embroidery, lace making, whatever it was, up to, you know, people who painted. So that there was a very broad foundation that I came out of. I'd become interested right from when I was a student in the work that, in work that people who were not trained in art schools did. Also, I would find that I saw things made by people in my family, people who weren't trained, kids, for instance, that that in my eyes, in the way I'd come to understand art, were art. They had that element that turned what they did into art. It wasn't just that they were necessarily talented, but there was something else. And that started me questioning the whole hierarchy of values and so on and the you know, the power of the institutions, the power of history, the, of course, all the questions that came up with feminism was, well, who are the historians? Oh, well, they're men. Who are the, you know, the directors of, of museums? Oh, well, they're men. The curators? Oh, well, mostly the men. And so gradually your eyes are opened to something that's straight right in front of your eyes, and that is that we, especially at that time, lived in a society where the dominant dominant group of people who made decisions, carried out actions, etc., etc., in the public space were men and women were mostly still in the domestic space and that was reviled, you know, and that's why we started looking at doilies and, you know, that, that what actually do women do who haven't been trained in arts? What do they do? Where does their creativity go? And um, as this awareness grew, it, I just found it 
an absolutely fascinating idea that touched me and my life and who I was and who I might be. Was that something that started when you were growing up? Like, I'm, you know, I'm curious to know what the women were like around you when you were growing up. Well, I had my mum and my sister and my friends and all the usual, th- you know, things. Um, it was, you know, it's just life, everyday life. I mean, all I can say is that I read widely. I was extremely interested in. I always wanted to do something in the arts. It changed from time to time. But there wasn't a conscious awareness like there is now that women were second-class citizens or something like that. As far as in my family, you know, I would have regarded my mother and father as being equal partners, you know. My father was a very wise and he was a great bloke and my mum was very talented and but she, look, I'm, she's 40 years older than me and her mother was 40 years older than her. My mother was born in 1900 and she went, when she went to school, she did, she would have liked to have gone to university and continued studying. I think she wanted to do botany or something like that. But there, her father was a uh, middle class, respectable sort of person. And it was normal for a man who had that status and was, had the, uh, was able to support the women in his family and my mother stayed home and helped her mother, my grandmother, do the house. And when I say do the house, in those days, housekeeping was a job. And I can tell you my mother taught me about keeping a house. I used to try and escape, but every holiday she'd say, well, now we're going to take one day and we'll go round and we'll just, uh, I'll show you how to clean the house. And I know, and it might sound quaint, but it was a job. There was a way of cleaning the bathroom properly so that you got into all the nooks and crannies. She would know about removing stains, about cleaning stoves were the best things to use. She would know all that. That's that's work. That's stuff. That that's the university uh, of house you know, house cleaning of housewives. And it's just been another example of the absolute denigration and the removal of what women do from understandings of the economy and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear you say that because you also went on to have a very external life away from the house. Well, as I say, growing up, I was one of those people who I couldn't wait for school to be over and for us to have holidays. <laughs> In the holidays, that was my chance to do what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was things like making puppets. I might have might have had one or two puppet shows, but it was the making that really got me. And in the end, you know, my father had a, a workshop and I was very keen in carving. I had brothers and sisters who were very practical and everybody was doing something and active and exploring the possibilities of this, that and the other. But again, it was mainly the making. And I suppose in a way that was something, I think there must have been something about the pleasure of doing things myself by myself in a way. So then in the 1950s, you would have gone to the National Arts School in Sydney. 
What was that like and what was it like especially as a female painter? By the time we got into our workshops, our disciplines, so I decided to do painting. I guess you could, you can probably judge that I could have gone in a number of directions. In fact, for a long time I wanted, I thought sculpture was what I wanted to do. But once I got there, I was very disappointed in most of the tutorship. And then when I got into the, the painting workshop, because I knew a lot about modernism and I was very interested in modernism, you know, starting off as like most people, you know, with Van Gogh and whatever, but I had got into the other manifestations that modernism took and I was really, really interested in the ideas. And and when I got into art school, I found that so many of the lecturers gave the impression that they knew very little about modernism. Many of them, or I'd better say some of them, who really gave you the impression that they were just holding their breath and waiting till the figure came back. And they really didn't seem to be interested in or very, you know, have a great deal of understanding about how abstraction arose and all of that. And I, I just found it astounding because at that time, what was it? It was in, in the 1950s. And I thought, it's just about half a century past when all these extraordinary things happened. You know, these people like Braque and, um, you know, Picasso and Clay, Clay and all the rest of them. Why aren't we being introduced to what these people were doing? On the whole, the only people who really understood the stuff that I was after were people like... Godfrey Miller and John Passmore, who weren't, they were like sessional teachers, you know, that, but they were the real artists and, um, uh, but they were the people that knew and the books that were available, you know, Thames and Hudson and so on in those days, generally speaking, they were picture books. They didn't give you any of the nitty gritty of what it was to be one of those artists at that time forging their way into new areas, you know, opening up new areas, trying to dissect what painting or what sculpture was as its essence when you took the subject out, for instance. What was there left? What is it about marks on a surface that gives them intensity and and meaning. When you talk about opening up to new areas, it makes me think of your first show at Sydney's Waters Gallery in 1967, and you exhibited works about female sexuality that seemed to cause quite a scandal at the time. Was the reaction as overblown as history makes it seem, and what did that feel like to you? It's a huge scandal for people outside. What was it for me? It was part of this journey. It was part of this journey to understand who I was, who what art was, to understand the world. One of the things that was about censorship, that was a big, big thing. One of them was about... Art. What is art? You know, I wanted to find out what it was for me to be an artist. I didn't know. And that work and that journey I went on 
that led up to the production of that work, which was to isolate myself, except from very few people. And this is where I say, work through it in the art, in myself, at the time I'm internally looking at the internal reality of me and, you know, and working, this is, you know, the working art provides the kind of processes whereby I can, or the, you know, by doing something uh, outside, that's a way we can think. And with me, art has always been the way I it, it can come to understand the world and understand not, not just the world, but what it is to be human. I also, uh, unlike today, you know, students go through through their courses, come out the other end, and go off and have an exhibition at a, a gallery. Well, that may, it may it's different today, and it works differently. But then people would go through five, their five years of study, and I don't think anyone much would have an exhibition in under five years be, when they left. And I determined that. Uh, when I was a young artist, that I wasn't going to have an exhibition until I felt absolutely ready for it. And I felt that when I'd gone through this whole experience and done Vag Dens and Phallic Monument and all the others and the drawings. And because in that time I had had this experience of break, this breakthrough and Vag Dens and Phallic Monument work the, were the works that most resulted from that, but all of those drawings, you know, building up to little by little. And then I had these experiences where I, I felt what it was to be an artist. I felt it physically in the pit of my, or whatever that is, you know. And, you know, I knew so much more about myself. And, and when you say that, you sort of, because what had I been thinking? I'd been working out things about uh, my relationship with my family and all of that stuff that us young people, you're going through. You're looking for who am I? Uh, you know, and for many people, you know, sexuality is incredibly, oh, boy, you know, incredibly important. And then I knew I was ready for the exhibition. Frank Waters was willing to do it. I worked in the empty gallery for six weeks over Christmas and uh, it opened, I don't know, February or something or other. And I knew with those paintings that, I look, I wanted, I definitely wanted people to notice. Oh, it wasn't a simple matter of just wanting to shock people. It's much more about me. But along with that, I wanted people to take me seriously. And people did end up taking you seriously and the proof is in that those paintings are now extremely important feminist artworks in Australian history. So the things that have um, been gratifying and that have, I've really enjoyed is over, over the years that people come to the work you know, much more accepting and they're not seen as so extraordinary and outlandish now uh, uh, and with much more understanding and so that was important. And one of the good things about that exhibition was that those people who spoke to me and were very appreciative, I started to realise that what for me had been a very personal journey actually was 
pretty universal overall. And the shock and horror was much more about that. It it was shocking in terms that it wasn't what people would expect to see, but especially wouldn't expect to see from a young woman that got the that got the uh, some of the blokes with their knickers absolutely in a knot. You know, if you ever read the oh yeah, it's amazing. If you ever read the crits from that time, it's absolutely amazing. Um, what did I feel? I was very exhausted. It was an incredibly exhausting few years because if you're gonna if you're gonna interrogate yourself. Ruthlessly, honestly, is not a necessary picnic. It's not a picnic. It's something. It takes hard work. You know, you have to overcome. You know, I keep on talking about conventions, but the conventions you've been taught in order to turn you into a a a, a good woman. You know, a good woman in terms of the culture that you live within. You know, you, you, you're being groomed and, uh, you know, all your life right from the beginning. When you do bring these things into the light, you often find surprising connections with people that you wouldn't think uh, would be thinking along those lines. Well, you know, ordinary people, you know, it's like your mums and your dads. But if you can get through the conventional way of relating, then often you find that there are these meeting points of understanding in all sorts kinds of people, you know. If you get through the conventions and get through the fixed idea of how to relate or get through defences and come to a relaxed place, you know, that's often where you meet similar places in other people's minds and hearts. When you've been doing this for 60 years and thinking about these things for 60 years, are there some, do you find that things or the fundamental questions remain the same or do you think they've changed over the decades? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that there are these things I'm talking about, like who am I? Well, that goes on because who am I? I'm now this 80-year-old woman. I'm different to that woman who made that work. You know, it's an exploration or discovery every single day. I discover more and more about the body as it decays and, you know, how do, how do I live in this world? Well, that changes too because the body's totally changing, but so is the mind. I can't think, you know, it's very difficult at times to, for my head to work. And censorship, well, there's always censorship of some kind or another. You know, it's really, you can see it all going on today. Now, to understand all of that, you've got to understand the shifts and changes and movements in in society and in, you know, historical and so on, that keeps changing. So if I was growing up today, I think the things that I might have, because I just think that going back to that young person, I just think that young people are often really good at intuiting what is sort of happening and what 
is about to happen, so to speak. And it's when we're young that, you know, that we can, we pick can often, often are in a state that we can pick that up intuitively and we don't necessarily know what it is, as I didn't know, but it felt really important in that atmosphere of censorship and so on. I thought, why are we always locating the image of the the beloved in faces when and being very young and discovering the significance of you know sexual interaction when when you love another person you don't only love their face you love all sorts of things about them and you know, it's likely that you really love their genitals where, it'll, you know, that interaction maybe all happens. And I thought, oh, oh I wouldn't mind. Yeah, I woke up one morning and I thought, oh, I think I'd like to do a portrait of each genital. But I wasn't thinking of a realistic one. I was just thinking of what came out as I worked within this idea. And so what you see is what came out. So it was intuitive and the, the the forms of seeing came from the kind of subconscious imagining, which was in line of the other drawings I was doing. And so does the relationship with feminism change as well over that time? Feminism is very important, but it's not all-encompassing of my interest in what it is to be human and to live in this world amongst this, you know, diversity is much more at the centre of me and my interest. You know, how do things and how do things fit together so that they create difference? So what's the internal dynamics of one thing that enables us to look at us and give it a name and another thing that we look at and realise it's different and give it a different name. You know, what's that extraordinary? I think that my life has been bound up with making, uh, with talking about and sharing things that might be difficult with other people and finding that it's important to talk about and, you know, struggling to find the ways to talk about it in ways that can be understood across many different differences and so on. And that was Vivian Binns for this eighth episode of The Long Run. Stay tuned for two more episodes to be released shortly, and you can also listen back to previous episodes with Stellark, Mervyn Bishop, Suzanne Archer, Robert Owen, Gareth Sansom, Wendy Stavrianos, and John Walsley. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise, listen at Art Guide Online, where you can also keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country. 